Welcome to Crónicas de la Raza. Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza. On tonight's program, we get ready to go back to school and we feature cutting-edge ideas on public education with Dr. Ida Overman and parents of the Community School for Creative Education and their Waldorf Influence Program at the most ethnically and economically diverse school in Oakland San Antonio District. We'll also enjoy the poetry of Harold Tereson and an interview with Eva Ma about her latest film. We also bring you more poetry and music and a tribute to Hugo Pinel. All this and much more, stay tuned. Because the last time he was in the newspapers was probably in 1971 or 1976, when he was tried as a member of the famous San Quentin Six, six young black prisoners facing assault charges stemming from battles with guards at the notoriously repressive California prison. Yet that wasn't the beginning, nor the end of things. Hugo Pinnell, known by his friends as Yogi, came to the U.S. as a 12-year-old from a small town on the eastern coast of Nicaragua. If he knew the hell he would face in America, would he have left the country of his birth? We'll never know. He came, and he has spent the last 42 years in prison, 34 of them, in solitary. He hasn't had a write-up in 24 years, after a lifetime in some of the most repressive joints in America. Why so long? Why so many years? The answer, not surprisingly, is politics. Hugo was a student and comrade of the legendary Black Panther Field Marshal, the late George Jackson, and worked to organize other black prisoners against the racist violence and prison conditions of the 60s and 70s. Consider this. When Hugo was sent to prison, Lyndon Baines Johnson was president. The bombing in the Vietnam War was intensifying, and Martin Luther King Jr. was still alive. Of his introduction to the prison system, Yogi would later write, in 1964, I was 19 years old. I turned myself into the authorities to clarify the charges against me. The deputies beat me several times, and the public defender and the judge influenced my mother into believing that I would be sentenced to death unless I pled guilty. I pled guilty to the charge of rape, with the understanding that I would be eligible for parole after six months. When I arrived at the California Department of Corrections, I was informed that I had been sentenced to three years to life. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. This is Emory Douglas, uh, revolutionary artist, uh, activist, uh, former uh, member of the Black Panther Party, 1967-1981. This is in memory of Hugo Yogi Pinnell. He was a childhood friend, and we grew up together in San Francisco and hung out in the Fillmore District of San Francisco where I lived and where there was a very large African-American community during that time. On several occasions, I remember going to his house, and we also went to parties, played basketball uh, at the playground. Also, we were used to shoot pool and also dice, trying to make a little money uh, on the side during our teenage years. Most uh, everybody back in the day in the streets knew Yogi not as Yogi, but as Hugo, I recall when 
he started identifying uh, more with his uh, Nicaraguan roots. He began to uh, hang out with his family much, much, much more. Thereafter, we uh, we would run across paths off and on, but he always had a good spirit, joking, talking with those he knew. And even then, as a youngster, he was very, very strong-willed. I recall when Yogi uh, got arrested, the word out on the street was he was with family that committed the rape not him but he would he wouldn't testify to that in court it was many years uh after yogi was uh, incarcerated i saw him for the first time since our days as youth in the courtroom as one of the san quentin six defendants he was chained and shackled like a modern day slave but by no means was he broken in spirit he, too, like uh, Comrade George Jackson, had transformed himself into a freedom fighter by any means necessary. Hasta siempre, Hugo. Solidarity forever. And now we are saddened by your sudden departure from us. Adios. Adios. Solidarity left you when it should have counted for something more and for what your long imprisoned life stood for. Solidarity forever. Now all your struggles to be free have failed and only death and an inglorious and violent death has claimed you at the hands of the cruel prison system. La luta continúa. Hasta siempre, Hugo. Vato, órale. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. My guest today is Eva Ma. She's a very interesting filmmaker because she concentrates on music and dance. In fact, she calls herself a music and dance junkie. Yes, yes, I think that's pretty accurate. <laughs> well, bienvenidos, welcome to La Raza Chronicles. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. I'm especially excited to hear about this new production that you've done called Dominoes, Caught in the Crisis. Could you tell us about that? Domino Caught in the Crisis is something that I filmed in Spain in Spanish, and its name in Spanish is Domino Agarrado por la Crisis. It's a one-hour film, and we are going to be presenting it at the Mission Cultural Center on August 22nd, which is a Saturday, along with a flamenco performance by La Tanya, who is a beautiful, beautiful flamenco dancer, in an event called Honduras, a film and a performance. 
So you have our local flamenco star, La Tanya, performing yes. live, and then you're also going to play your film. Yes. Dominos. Yes, yes. So can you tell us something about Dominos? Domino is about a middle-aged family man who has lost his job. It's really, it's, it's a drama, it's fiction, it's not a documentary, but it's about the economic crisis in Spain and the emotional cost uh, uh, being caught up in that crisis. So it's set in Spain, but you feel that this film has important things to say to people here in the U.S. Oh, absolutely. I think, I mean, it's partly about falling out of the middle class. It's partly about what do you do when your back's against the wall. We have homeless problems. We have the outrageous situation of the cost of higher education. So we're graduating all these people with tremendous debt. Uh, we have income inequality, and all of these things are, are, are really kind of the same bag of tricks as a person struggling in Spain who has lost his job and can't find another one because of the crisis there. So, yeah. And as I say, the the film is more about the emotional cost, so I feel that it's very relevant to the United States. And is dance and music a part of this film? There is no dance in the film, but there's plenty of background music. Our star is a flamenco singer, a world-touring flamenco singer. And in addition to being the lead actor, some of the background music is sung by him. There's also some beautiful, beautiful uh, guitar solo music. So there's, there's plenty of very nice music. And we chose the title Hondura for this event because... The feeling that you get from the film is the same as the feeling you get from flamenco that is well-performed, and Tanya embodies that perfectly. So that's why we made that combination. Now, you're also offering people tickets. Yes, and first I should mention that if you want to find out about the event, you can go to Mission Cultural Center's website, which is missionculturalcenter.org. You can also go to our general website, which is palominopro.com, and I will spell that, P-A-L-O-M-I-N-O-P-R-O.com. The event is right underneath the trailer. So missionculturalcenter.org and palominopro.com. And uh, we are giving away two free tickets to the event to the first two people who sign up for our newsletter after hearing this broadcast. And I'm going to give that website too. So get your pens out. It is palominoprodvd.com. I will repeat palominoprodvd cd.com. The first two people to sign up get a free ticket to this event on August 22nd in Mission Cultural Center. In San Francisco. In San Francisco. Thank you. Well, this is very exciting. Now, you also have an upcoming production going to be on one of the PBS stations. Is that right? Yes. Uh, it's about Afro-Peruvian music and dance. It's called A Zest for Life. Because Afro-Peruvians have a zest for life, and that, again, is about music and dance. I just found out, I think, 10 days ago, the National Educational Television Association, uh, NETA, uh, has accepted it for national broadcast. It will take a couple of months for it to get set up on them, but I am really, really excited. Well, do come back and let our listeners know when that's scheduled, because... 
We are great fans of Afro-Peruvian music. Ah, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Then you know that the cajon came out of the Afro-Peruvian tradition, and you may know about the quijada de burro and the cajita. There are all kinds of interesting musical instruments that Afro-Peruvians came up with, that many of which have been adopted into Latin jazz, and several of the rhythms of traditional Afro-Peruvian music have been adopted into uh, Latin jazz as well. Well, it's been very exciting to talk to you, and I'm looking forward to your return so that we can catch that production about Afro-Peruvian music on our local PBS station, I guess. But I do want to remind people about the event in Mission Cultural Center, August 22nd, 7.30, that's a Saturday, by the way, called Honduras, a film and a performance. Um, My film, Domino, and a flamenco performance by La Tanya. Well, thank you very much. Looking forward to talking to you again, Eva Ma. Thank you, Nina. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Un placer. Rosa de Castilla, tu enganchan sesashi, tu enganchan pundumen, Rosa de Castilla. Tantiani cuarmale para nois pacaras como es florentí. Rosa de Castilla, tu enganchan sesashi, tu enganchan Rosa de Castilla, tante aniquarmale para nois pacaras como es florentí, tan si cuarguandacua, cucho es suerte, nani minduis tu caristia, tante Rosa de Castilla, tu enganchan sesashi, tu enganchan pundumen, Rosa de Castilla. Tante arigualmane para nois pacaras como es florentí. Tan si cuarguandacua, acuecucho es suerte, nani This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. My theme today is back to school, and our guests are from Oakland's Community School for Creative Education, part of the Alameda County Office of Education. The Community School for Creative Education is an exciting school for me to discuss since a few weeks ago I took a morning tour of the school. I left very inspired and full of renewed hope for our young 
as I learned about their exciting program. The Community School for Creative Education is a free public charter school in Oakland based on Waldorf-inspired learning with its emphasis on creativity, community, and the arts. The school is rich in diversity and located on International Boulevard in the heart of the sex and drug trafficking. Yet, the environment it creates supports a sense of safety and wholesomeness with children cooking food they grow and baking bread. My guests today are the director and active parent participants in the Community School for Creative Education. Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Dr. Ida Oberman, founder and director. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. And welcome to you, Bernadette Richards, parent and outreach coordinator. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And welcome to you, Ana Renderos, president of the Parents in Action Committee. Gracias. Estamos muy contentos de estar aquí. And welcome to you, Velia. Velia Navarro is one of the founding parents of the school. Gracias. We are excited to talk about our school. Dr. Oberman, what is Waldorf-inspired education? Waldorf education was started almost 100 years ago by somebody named Rudolf Steiner, and he taught us to focus on the whole child, head, heart, and hand. And so our Waldorf-inspired school is free, it's community-based, and we focus on just that, that while children learn their standards-aligned curriculum, they get the artistic opportunity to do watercolor, they bake bread, they garden, they move, they sing, they do theater, which all we now know also from brain research helps deepen and make more meaningful what the children learn so they can go forth and own their learning and make new knowledge. Well, why and how was the school founded? I myself, I'm Dutch, and at the age of nine, we moved to Germany, which was very scary enterprise. I was a foreigner. I didn't know the language, and I ended up in a Waldorf school so that when later in life I thought what I owed my own path to, I thought of the Waldorf experience I had as somebody who was an immigrant and not a native language speaker, and I wanted to provide that in Oakland, which I knew is a place of many new innovative things for our community. So how did you begin? I found uh, uh, Velia Navarro through Oakland Community Organizations. And Velia Navarro, tell us a little bit what happened when Dr. Oberman came to talk to your group. She came to our group and asked if there were anyone interested in being part of a new school that was coming to our community in Oakland. And that's how I started. Uh, we started meeting and creating one-on-one visits. So we, when you were at that first meeting, how many were you? We were only four of us. It was only four of us in those meetings. And then you decided to do this door-to-door canvassing? Yes, we started doing the door-to-door, doing the asking parents what they wanted. What was the idea of a good school for their children? If they felt their children were being properly educated in the school where they were currently attending or they were going into, and what were their expectations for a school in their community? 
So when you went door to door all over the San Antonio district and you got the survey results, what was the next step? We then started with doing open houses. A lot of the organization, uh, schools, churches opened their doors for us to host our open house and there we explain what a Walter Bay school would look like and that we were targeting to be in that area because me myself I grew up in that area and for me it was really important to be part of this to have something to say I help my community and it was very important to get other parents involved in the community that wanted the same thing to see a bright future for our children. And at that point, you didn't even have a school building. At that point, we did not have a school building. We, we were searching, and we were trying to get approved at the same time. And about how many families were you? We started, like, coming in 10, but by the time we did our presentations, we were over 100 families. How long did that take? It took us about two years to create that community because we were, more than anything, we were not just looking out for parents that wanted to do just something different, but parents that were committed to our idea of bringing in a Waldorf Bay school and getting them to understand what it was. So Bernadette, how did you recruit the local working families that may have had more than one job in a school that demands parent participation? Well, thank you for asking. As the parent that leads the tours of parents that come in to be prospective students, I ask the first question, do you see any children running around? And they always say no, because their parents participate where the children are in their learning with their teachers and parents are in there supporting the children. The children like to see their parents in the classrooms and throughout the school, so they're engaging. And as the parents are there supporting the children, we're also supporting the teachers. The teachers can focus on the curriculum while the parent walks around in the class and supports the children that may be struggling. And they enjoy that. They have a sense of, I am contributing to my child's education, and the child loves that, the teacher loves it. So we have a quiet, small school, and everyone's doing their part. They make time because, as we know, it is very difficult to make time in your child's education because of our busy lifestyles, but it's flexible to come in. You can do it at your time. We have the parents in action committee. We have the room parents, and we talk to the teachers to find out what the teachers need, and we go from there. We also ask what school needs, and we do what we want with the support of the teachers is because it's what we like to do. And what about working parents that can't always be free in the day and aren't always available? How do you adjust for that? Well, we is we have the after-school program. They can do things in the afternoon. They can do things on the weekends because we have activities on the weekend called our work day. And that's when we come in on the Saturday and we clean up and beautify the school. We get creative. We have fun. We come together as a community, as a family. I tell the families that all the time. We are a family. We're not just a school. So you're coming into a new family. Meet some new family members and engage. And I'd like to ask you, Anna, what is the relationship of the school to the community? We have a good relationship with the community. We have communication with another organization and also with Sun Church. We also have a march every last Friday of the month. And what's that march? It's a drug and human trafficking stop. A protest against drugs and human trafficking? Yeah. And how do you explain that to young children? 
So um, we explained that we need a, a better world for us, and so we explained the kids, and we take the kids for the march, and they are happy to help with a safe, safe street for safe kids. And so you explain it at the level of safe streets for safe kids. Yes. How other ways do you work with the community? In October, we have a Arby Fest, and the whole families can come. And we have an open house every Tuesday. The families can come and know how the school working. And so, Dr. Oberman, how do you feel the school is working since you were the initiator of wanting a, a school here in Oakland, a Waldorf-influenced school? How do you feel after five years and the initiation now of two kindergartens up to eighth grade, how do you feel the school is doing? In many ways, it's exceeding expectation. We're so proud to be the most diverse school in Oakland that we have strong roots in the community, deep relations, and are building an ever stronger culture that we also serve among the highest percent special needs and are the single urban public Waldorf school right now in the state. We also know that we learn every day and we're proud to continue to improve and we do so with pride and joy. And are there still spaces for new families to join the Community School for Creative Education in Oakland? There are still a few, not many, but there are a few. Anybody interested, we encourage them to be in touch quickly because school is beginning next week. And how can they reach you? They can reach our school by going to our website, www dot community school for creative education dot org or contacting me on my cell phone which is five one oh five one seven oh three three one. Let me repeat that. The website is www dot community school for creative education dot org or my website five one oh five one seven oh three three one. Well, thank you very much. Are there any last words that any of you would like to add? Yes, I would like to add that our school is a place of warmth. The children view it as home because they spend so much time there. It is set up as a home. Please come and join us. You will feel welcome there. You are welcome there. It is a place of love. I can guarantee that. We've been there for two and a half years now, and Raylene does not want to transfer. Well, when I toured the school, I was very impressed with the fact that the rooms were being painted in, by the parents in the most beautiful ways, and they were hanging up silk curtains in the classrooms and polishing up the floors and talking about rugs so that I saw that a lot of love was being poured into the environment itself that the children were going to be spending time in. Just as they spend quality time at home in a safe and comfortable environment, they spend six hours there and more when they're in the after-school program there. So we wanted to have the same feel as home because they are there that many hours. At home, you have curtains, you have rugs, you have a play area, and you have parents there, and you participate just as the same. So that is why the environment is such. Dr. Oberman, could you tell us what is the multicultural and international aspect of the school? We serve families from different language backgrounds. Uh, we have a Spanish and Vietnamese and Cantonese and Mandarin families and language support in each of those as well as English. 
And how can people reach you through the school district? The best way to reach us is our website, www.communityschoolforcreativeeducation.org for overall information. I repeat, www.communityschoolforcreativeeducation.org. And then to speak to our school, we encourage you to call us at 510-686-4131. That's 510-686-4131. And we have a language support in different languages, so please feel free to call. We're on 2111 International. Well, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now we'll hear from Mexican indie rock band Torre Blanca, and we'll feature a few tracks off of their latest album, El Polvo en la Luz.
haciéndonos los locos Quebrábase la voz Llenábanse los ojos de lágrimas Para consentirlo todo Lo que se te perdió Lo que no hice yo Tu verdadero rostro bajo de la sábana La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, have in the studio with me today Harold Teresón. He is a writer and teacher of poetry, and he has been a 
guest here on the program, and we're lucky to have him back to read some poems for us. Harold, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me back. It's always a pleasure and an honor to be here. So, Harold, you often explore different themes. Last time I think you were here, you focused on some really beautiful poems that we loved around this idea of superheroes. What are some of the themes you're tackling now or some things that you would like to share with us? Well, right now I'm working on a short manuscript about being a teacher, um, the experiences of teaching and the excitement and the challenges of trying to teach young students you know, how to voice themselves. And that's always a challenge. Oftentimes people think of youth, they think of high school age. You know, you have a lot of experience with that age group. But you've also worked a lot with a lot younger students, which for me, I've been so blown away with the poetry that comes out of these very young students. So tell us about the type of students that you work with. Well, I mostly work with middle school students and elementary school students, like third, fourth, fifth graders and seventh and eighth graders. Yeah, they're just a blast. I feel like I can be myself more around them, you know, the sense of humor and teasing back and forth at the same time. And what kind of stuff have they produced? We invited some of your middle school students in. They're here part of Writer's Court. I was blown away. I mean, first of all, the poetry was a huge range, had really different styles. So what kinds of things do they come up with? And, you know, what what is that process like? What a lot of teaching artists try to do is um, have them have a very social awareness kind of voice. And for me, it's a little bit different. That's not the way I grew up. It was more finding your voice anyway. So it was more, I ended up imitating Shakespeare, writing love poems that way. Didn't have anything to do about like brown pride or, you know, fighting racism. And I kind of want to find that, or I I hope that my students feel comfortable enough just to feel comfortable expressing themselves. So in the classroom, I normally bring anything from like Erica Badu to like Tim Burton, you know, these animating films along with his poems. So it's a wide range, illustrated stories as well. And for me, it's more important that they find themselves comfortable enough to write. And that's far more important to me than like trying to figure out like what they're going to do about, you know, racism. And I'm pretty sure that they deal with it anyways. And a lot of it actually comes out in very subtle ways in their work anyways. So I don't push them in that way. So um, what would you like to share with us? Well, on the theme of teaching students, I do have one that I wrote about a student a couple years ago. She was an eighth grader, and she was one of the more difficult students I had to deal with, very disruptive for like the first half of the year. And somewhere, her relationship with me changed. And actually, she ended up being one of the more um, prolific writers in the classroom and ended up reading at the school, student reading, and just she was just an amazing writer at the end. So this piece is called Jennifer, and it was just at the point before she changed into being this amazing student. It was where she was still harassing me, and it's called Jennifer. I asked her if she could write for once, just once, for five minutes straight without talking or disrupting the class with inappropriate commentary or jokes. Write anything, I told her. Your thoughts, emotions, hopes, anything just right. After five months of asking her to shut up and write, she must have felt pity for me because she took her pen adamantly, a blank sheet of lined paper from her friend, and wrote for five minutes straight. A miracle, I thought. It's going to rain for sure today. I could tell she was into whatever she was writing, so diligent. She was so focused writing, I stayed away from her as to not cramp her style or her space. 
I admitted. I tapped my own shoulder when I saw her writing. Good job, Mr. T. Good job. I was very proud of myself. This is what teaching is all about. Tap, 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 tap. That's right. Finally, after all these months, this was the first step of me shaping a young mind. That's what I'm talking about. At the end of the class, she stood up. Here, she said, smirked and walked out. On her desk lay a free response, a ball of crumbled line paper. At least she wrote, I thought. Good for her. After five months in my class, she finally had taken the time to write something, and I couldn't wait to see what she wrote. All excited, I opened the ball of crumbled line paper. In it, she wrote, I hate this freaking class, 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 I hate this freaking class. God, I hate you and this freaking class, I hate this freaking class, I hate this freaking class. Two full pages, front and back, in large letters in pink ink. The following Thursday, I returned student free rights back to their owners. When I walked to Jennifer's desk, she laughed as I gave her wrinkled paper back. How you like it, Mr. T? she asked. It was funny and honest, I replied. I bet it was, she said, back laughing and high-fiving her friends at her desk. That is, until she read my comments. Jennifer, I am glad to see you are finally tapping into your emotions, taking risks, and writing honestly what you feel. One suggestion, though, to improving this piece as I have said in class many times, Jennifer, make sure to add imagery and concrete details that clearly reflects why you hate this freaking class. Signed, Mr. T. <laughs> I love that. I really identified with that. That was awesome. I, both as the student and as the teacher. <laughs> that was great. It's funny, I read that piece in a couple of open mics and readings, and a lot of the teachers always seem to be, like, nodding their their heads as they're reading, and, you know, as they can definitely relate to that. So, so uh, do you have any other pieces you'd like to share with us? The following poem is called Myself, and it's a type of emulation of Walt Whitman's Song of Myself that I wrote a few years ago. I am not my sister's my father, my mother. There's more than one atom in me, entering, departing. When I die, the carbon-14 in me will decay with a half-life of about 5,730 years if it's so pilote doesn't pick at me first. I do share some DNA strands, some memories, our home in Pacoima next to Richie Valen's aunt, and later in Reseda, near the hospital Chick Hearns died in. But I was never a wetback. Twice, Guatemala, Mexico, before approaching San Diego, carrying an eight-month child in my stomach, leaving two daughters behind. Not even once. I did not shed any tears on September 11, walk, breathe, look, dress any differently afterwards. I was sad for the families, but could not feel their sorrow, grief, I wish it wouldn't have happened. Too bad it happened. It was bound to happen. La bondad no debe confundirse con la sumisión. It was a case of the chickens coming home to roost. Cesar was randomly picked 12 straight times on domestic flights with his U.S. passport on hand on his yearly company flights. 
I only waited five hours in line for a 56-minute flight to L.A. to watch Sade perform the following Friday live at the Great Western Forum. I never met Papabo, but I know who he is. My uncle, who lived in La Casa de Colón, cerca de la quebradita que se une con el río de Guasapa, donde los balazos más modernos rompieron su cerebro, enfrente del cuarto de mi hermana mayor. While I was enjoying a Dodger dog, wearing my new Dodger cap, wondering what a million dollars a day could bring to our family. Someone took a picture of him in the casket. He had a tear running down his face. The dead are just as saddened by this as the living, someone said. Sometimes I don't understand my mom bringing up these ch and words she calls Spanish, making up English words, laughing at my on-the-fly Spanish. I hear my sister's laugh, gringo, pasmado, gavacho, americano. But she only kind of remembers el cadejo, la ciguanaba, el cipitillo. My mom only learned how to make pupusas, edible ones, last year. After two years of making rice rock paperweights with beans in them. My sister's still teaching my mom how to make curtido. And I, as always, bring the cola champagne and the 7-Up. Whether I'm wearing a guayabera or the Berkeley sweatshirt with Berkeley in bold letters singing Piano Man on campus with my cow backpack holding the Norton Anthology of anything written in English, I will be asked if I speak English in what seems to be Spanish. Jose asked me where I was from. ¿Y en qué parte de México queda El Salvador? We watched a lot of Scooby-Doo, A-Team, and listened to Depeche Mode, P.E., and Shakira before the Red Album and the Blonde Hair. A lot of times, Miguel will charge me a dollar for a large coffee because he says I'm a student. So I tip him with un cubule and a dollar, but he gives my sister a free cookie without any purchase, always with a raised eyebrow. I went to see Harvard and MIT, sang Julio Jaramillo, but Cheers looks nothing like it does on TV. So I came back to UC Berkeley, watched my sister graduate at Sellerbach, a degree in Latin American studies and Spanish literature. And she watched me receive mine at the Greek theater because our dad's degree turned into toilet paper when he stepped onto San Diego. I am not my father, my sisters, my mother. But on the drive through Livermore, my malicha pointed to the birds circling above us. Parece sopilote. That's the voice of Harold Tereson reading his original work. Thank you so much, Harold, for sharing that with us. Harold, so would you like to share with us another piece? So I, Yes, I do, of course. Um, so this one's actually titled El Nuevo Latino FM, and it's based on me returning L.A. a few years ago, maybe like 10 years ago, and listening to the radio, my sister, my baby sister, who's like 14 years younger than I was. It was just interesting to see my sister listening to all these radio stations who um, now were geared to the Latino audience down there. And a lot of reggaeton, a lot of Spanglish um, music was what they were playing. And so this is based on that and a lot of stuff that I was reading up here at the moment. El Nuevo Latino FM. Y dicen que goes a little something like this. 
DJ Eddie Q on the spin table broadcasting live nationwide, scratching heteroticlets and hybridities for the contemporary American free mind freestyle remix from the shanty barrios of TJ San Diego to the rich surf and turf of Santa Barbara, Nuevo Mexico, Miami, Nuevo York, Chicago, D.C., and up to the heights of Cuscatlang, Palenque, and Machu Picchu. Come go with me, oye y ven, veni y ve como he, she who searches will not find the mind, a paradise in ashes, but will find mi familia in a time of azúcar and butterflies, an inevitable revolution built from the bitter sweet sweat of mango trees that feed the nation of mommies and papis, G-moms and G-pops, Odyssey al Norte, never losing tenderness, hardening us, strengthening us. Papa, power, poetry for the populace, prosification, a lyrical tongue tableism, a land that borders us in another checkbox space which it brands us, ni de aquí o allá for all, pero que no nos trago porque our lighter, darker shade of brown, black, yellow, red, white, Uncle Sam, we are this land, your vinyl and petrified, this bamba pati. Samba la bala, tango muevele, muevele, because you remember or must know by now how we like it like that. Cumbia, merengue, memory mambo number five. Crack, crack, scratching it like a sopa de caracol. Hey, boricua, boludo, borena, dominicano, tico, chapin, chicano, latino. Some of you don't know what's happening. Que pasa? Time to get a new watch and see. Flip the switch. SAP, ASAP, stare us around. Sound, cucuru, me, FCC, CC, your HD TV. Redial your radio and listen to Latin lingo. Baby, funky, bilingo. Que ya va a ver que si se puede. You've heard some of the original pieces of Harold Tereson. Harold, thank you so much for coming to the studio. So how can folks stay up? I know that along with being a writer and working with Writers Corps and supporting young people develop their voices, you also are involved in a lot of literary events and happenings. So how do people hear your work and, and how can people read more of your stuff? I do have some stuff online, but it's like literary journals, such as like a Centos Review, and um, I don't know, you can just Google me. I don't really have a website. I'm on Facebook, kind of, most of the time. Yeah, it's, you can just follow me, like, live on the open mic circuit in San Francisco and Oakland. Um, we really thank you for coming in today, and we look forward to having you back and hearing more of your work. Thank you for inviting me. The beverage industry is specifically targeting Latino children and youth by increasing their marketing efforts on Spanish-language television. Monica Mendoza introduces us to an unhealthy family tradition to analyze how sugar-sweetened beverages impact Latino communities and contribute to the type 2 diabetes epidemic. This piece was part of the Bigger Picture Project through Youth Speaks and the Center for, and the Center for Vulnerable Populations at UCSF. Every time my family and I visit tias, tios y compadres, the first question we're asked, ¿Quieres una coca? Send their children to the liquor store on the corner of the block with two crinkle dollars and coins rattling in their pockets. We laugh about who was passed out drunk at the last family fiesta and update each other on nuestras familias in Guerrero while sipping our carbonated poison. It just isn't polite to not have soda when visitors are over. Reject it and you'll be labeled as a malcriado. Accept everything that is offered to you. Coca, papitas fritas con chile, limón y sal, los dulces que traímos de México la vez pasada. 
We use sweets as a way to show we care. Diabetes and obesity is the last thing on our minds. Panza llena, corazón contento, our heartbeats. Beat at the rhythm of cumbia as mom cooks her sopes and enchiladas. It just doesn't feel like a meal without that Coke bottle. Without the gas bubbles drowning our noses and mouths, that gargling feeling that takes over our throats. Coke and a glass bottle of the Mexico that gives us that taste and sensation of home. We think this possibly can't hurt us even though we can't read the ingredients on the label. Forget that home is the number one obese country in the world and we're here in the US living up to the same legacy. Walk into mi pueblo and stock up on this week's special of four two liter Coke bottles for a dollar. Throw in the cheap Tampico juices and sarritas for the kids to eat after school for the next two weeks. Mom and dad are too busy working 10 hours or more to limit the intake of junk food. No desperdices la comida, eso me costó. Too busy trying to make a living then live healthily. Any kind of nourishment that keeps us moving. Even if we're moving slower than the rest of the world or struggling to complete everyday tasks, we are still moving. And that is all that matters. We are desperately looking for home in our plates and cups. Dinner has become an expedition where we lick our plates clean and swallow cups of nostalgia. Nostalgia that isn't even from our own country. Our tongues have been colonized with the belief that this cup of Coke is home. Forget that those before us used to only drink water. We are literally killing ourselves trying to find parts of us in Coke bottles. Dinner in Mexico was cooked and served under the moonlight. But now, we're more than a thousand miles away, finally having that one hour we've been looking forward to all day. Family dinner. All the women call their children away from the TV. Coca-Cola polar bear commercials playing in the background for the fourth time that hour. The clinks and clatter of plates and forks drown out the commercials. The sound of laughter at childhood stories in Mexico fill up our bellies. We find home in each one of our stories. There's no need to pull out that Coke bottle. There's no need to almost kill ourselves trying to find memories of home. This latest piece was by Monica Mendoza. Her piece was produced through The Bigger Picture Project. You can find out more about their work at the, thebiggerpictureproject.org. The Bigger Picture Project is a partnership between UCSF's The Center for Vulnerable Populations, as well as Youth Speaks. We also want to alert our listeners to an upcoming event. The Victoria Theater in San Francisco presents Ileana Lopez in her one-woman show, What is the Scandal? ¿Cuál es el Escándalo? An original piece written and directed by Alfonso Lopez, and it's backed by popular demand. It continues Friday, August 21st through Sunday, September 6th at the Victoria Theater in San Francisco. This is a one-woman show. It's at Victoria's Theater at 2961 16th Street. And following rave reviews and a successful sellout run at the Mission Cultural Center, the Victoria Theater in San Francisco will present What is the Scandal? beginning Friday, August 21st through 
Sunday, September 6th. That's this Friday. And the play is, a, is bilingual with English subtitles. Award-winning film, theater, and television actress Eliana Lopez returns to the stage to introduce her one-woman show, What is a Scandal? In her own voice, Lopez explores the human side of the political scandal subsequent trial in 2012 against her husband in San Francisco Sheriff Ross Mercurini. Call now 510-848-4425. We'll be giving tickets away to the fifth caller that can properly identify what theater this play will be shown. A pair of tickets to our fifth caller. Muchísimas gracias por estar con nosotros. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. If you enjoyed this program and want to listen to it again or share with a friend, you can go to our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash La Raza Chronicles, and you can share our program that way. You can also be in touch at La Raza Chronicles at kpfa.org. We'd love to hear from you about any ideas or if you'd like to get involved with the collective. Muchísimas gracias y buenas noches. Mm-hmm.